This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. As the general election restarts following the dreadful attack in Manchester, we'll look at the political response to terrorism, how the leaking of details from the scene of the bombing will affect transatlantic relations and what to expect in the final two weeks of the campaign. Joining me this week are Tim Shipman, the political editor of the Sunday Times, and from the Times deputy political editor Sam Coates. Welcome to you both. Now, the week began with Theresa May forced into an embarrassing U-turn on her social care plans as she went from ruling out a cap on how much we'd have to spend to pay for our care when we get older to suddenly thinking it was a good idea. But the political point scoring was quickly forgotten on Monday night when news came through of a suicide bombing at the Manchester Arena, which killed 22 people and injured more than 60. And then we ended the week with an extraordinary transatlantic row with Theresa May confronting Donald Trump over the US leaking details of the bombing, including photos from the crime scene, details of the investigation and even the name of the suspect. British police announced they would now not share any more intelligence with their American counterparts. Well, let's start with that story and we can speak to Deborah Haynes, the Times defence editor, who is at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. Deborah, this is uh, pretty extraordinary, isn't it? This this apparent breakdown in the transatlantic relationship and British police saying they won't share intelligence with the Americans. Yeah, no, it is unprecedented. Although officials are sort of at pains to say that this is a police issue and the wider intelligence sharing relationship between the actual MI6, MI5, GCHQ and their American counterparts is apparently unaffected. But presumably that might only be for a matter of time if more and more information gets leaked. How it's been explained to me is that the intelligence sharing relationship that the UK and the US enjoy is of paramount importance to both sides. And the nature is, it's sort of fundamental to everything that our intelligence and security agencies do. I mean, we glean an awful lot of information from the American network, far more than we feed back to them. And so while obviously it's massively concerning that information is not as secure as you might like it to be. There's very much a sense that, for now at least, on an official level, things are continuing. And also a sense that within the American system itself, there's extreme embarrassment over what's happening because a lot of, most, the majority of of, of the community there, they know how to keep a secret and they don't want to see things leaked to the media. 
But it, it does raise questions as how long this can go on for. Sam Coates? It's worth unpacking the politics of what's going on uh, in regard to this intelligence, uh, this temporary stop to intelligence cooperation. It feels to me, and senior government sources are guiding, that this is a decision by Greater Manchester Police not to share about solely about information relating to the terror attacks. In other words, it looks to me as if Greater Manchester Police has perhaps even unilaterally changed the nature of the UK-US intelligence sharing special relationship. And it feels to me, and this is very early days, that people in Whitehall, people in London, are not altogether keen to send the message to the Americans, we don't trust you, because, as Debbie rightly says, uh, that has implications in both directions. What has changed when it comes to Greater Manchester Police recently? Well, three weeks ago, Andy Burnham was elected not only Metro Mayor of the Greater Manchester region, but also took the job of overseeing police and crime, effectively inherited the job of police and crime commissioner in Manchester. Who is most cross at the moment at the intelligence sharing? Well, from the extraordinary statements released late on Wednesday night by Andy Burnham's office, it would appear to be Andy Burnham. It looks to me as if Andy Burnham, together with... um, Manchester Police have taken this. It's not quite clear whether it was done with the knowledge of central government, with the cooperation of central government, with the enthusiasm of central government. And I think those are some of the questions that we're going to get to over the coming days. And I find there, I'm, I'm really interested to find out what answers we get. Although whether or not central government agreed with Greater Man- Manchester Police doing this, there's no question at all that they are absolutely furious. Oh, they're absolutely livid. Um, the Americans did it, they told them not to. Then the French did it, they told them not to. And then the Americans did it again. Um, anyone who's worked in Washington, as Sam and I have, knows that they have a very different approach to the release of information over there. The CIA has a press officer. It has a series of guys who used to work in the CIA who talk openly to journalists and brief on what's going on with investigations, whereas here um, the intelligence agencies have one contact on each national newspaper and refuse to talk to anybody else, and they're extremely parsimonious about how much they put out. Uh, The interesting thing here for me is the conversation that Theresa May is now going to have with Donald Trump. She's sort of saying, well, you need to rein in these terrible intelligence people who are doing all this briefing. I'm not sure Donald Trump's going to be able to do much about that. He spent most of the last six months complaining that the US intelligence agencies have been leaking against himself. So it's not clear that he's going to be able to rein them in either. Debbie, while we've got you on the line, we should just talk as well about the scenes of British troops on the streets. This was ordered in the immediate aftermath so that the armed forces could step in to guard public buildings and that sort of thing, which is normally done by police. How significant is that from your point of view? And, and you know, there's been a big debate about whether well, this just plugging gaps in the police force, which have been cut, but the armed forces have been cut as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that it's quite good for the for the army because it gives them something to do uh, now that they're not involved in combat operations <laughs> overseas. Um, uh, but, it, I mean, there, there is a sense of, uh, of questioning as to whether, obviously we know that the, the threat level has been raised to critical and there are concerns, therefore, that another terrorist attack is imminent. But it was put to me yesterday by a number of former military that it's not as if you've got right now uh, a marauding terrorist attack, thank goodness, um, which would obviously require the help of the military to perhaps um, contain large areas, say sort of woodland, if you had like attackers on the run or something like that. Um, It's it's a strange message to send to the world that we don't have, at a time of crisis like this, enough police to, enough armed police to, to carry out duties outside Downing Street, Buckingham Palace, the Houses of Parliament, and instead having the military there. So in that sense, is it more symbolism as opposed to being necessary. 
and or, and is it also an indication that the police has been underfunded and not equipped properly to be able to deal with this on their own? So instead of being a positive PR exercise to say, look, you know, we've got the the British forces out as well, it actually sends the the opposite message that people think, well, why why aren't there enough police to do these jobs? In a way, yes, but also it, I think the Brit- Britain is quite unique in in the way that we're so averse to the idea of having troops on the street. I mean, you know, it was something under Cameron that they. Um, you know, the army were saying that there was really absolutely no appetite within government when tensions were high and the security risk was high in the wake of attacks such as in, in Paris um, to deploy soldiers to, to give support to the police, um, you know, in part because obviously we've got the long record of military involvement in Northern Ireland. And then also this kind of resistance to having too many armed officers on the street. But I mean, I'm here in Brussels at the moment, and it's really notable that I was talking to one of my friends who lives here, um, and she sort of says the police, yeah, the, the, sorry, the army are everywhere. Um, and they have been ever since the attacks here last year. So that it, it's kind of accepted as normal life, and people get quite a lot of comfort at seeing them there. So kind of makes you wonder why not i mean if there is a really a heightened security threat why should it be a such a big deal to see troops on the street as well as armed police it, it just seems to be sensible to me well debbie i really appreciate you taking time to uh, speak to us thanks so much thank you bye okay so tim and sam let's uh, move on and talk about the political impact of the attack in manchester sam what what do you think will be as the campaign gets back into gear. What do you think will be the impact on politics and on the election campaign? Nobody can predict how this will play. There is a little bit of sort of lazy assumptions that this might help the Conservative Party. Uh, but I, I, I think it's important to stress that at this stage, um, there has been a big and momentous event, but it is unclear what the ramifications could be, and they could be big or they could be small, and they could help one side or they could help uh, the other. And we don't, we just, we just don't know. Uh, on the one hand, we're waiting to find out whether or not uh, the Conservatives will push the argument that they um, are a security focused party. Theresa May has been in the Home Office and knows how uh, the levers of security work and can be trusted in this area, unlike members of the uh, Corbyn team. That could be an argument that they choose to pursue with any level of velocity and ferocity, depending on what they judge the public mood to be. But at the same time, Labour or UKIP this morning, who are trying to get up and running an argument about whether or not the security services and the police and the security apparatus generally was underfunded for several years, and that has contributed to uh, a lapse in security that allowed uh, this week's absolutely catastrophic and awful terrorist attack to take place. Jeremy Corbyn might want to run an argument that we are uh, this week seeing the fruits of 17 years worth of failed interventions overseas uh, and we are reaping the downsides of, uh, of, of a foreign policy pioneered by Tony Blair. That, that could be an argument that he chooses uh, to use. Or alternatively, all of the events this week may not end up factoring in people's votes. People may vote uh, based on uh, the offers by the political party that we heard largely in last week's manifesto launches. At this stage, we do not know. I wouldn't make any assumptions. And this race could change or it could stay the same. But genuinely, as the misassumptions last year about the impact of the death of Joe Cox proved, the British public are very hard to read at times of turbulence. Tim, Sam's right, isn't he? That it, not just the Joe Cox 
death last year, but also when there have been similar things happening in other European countries. Everyone assumes or tries to guess what the impact will be on polls and elections, that sort of thing. And it very rarely plays out like that. No, we got it wrong over Joe Cox. Um, people were much more sanguine about it than I think everyone has expected. And if you if you look at the way both of the parties are, are behaving at the moment, um, they're both being pretty wary of making any of the political points that, that Sam has made. The Conservatives will sort of hope that the general sense that Theresa May is better in a crisis than Jeremy Corbyn and sounder on terrorism than Jeremy Corbyn will sort of play out through the ether without them necessarily making the points that they might have been tempted to make had this just been a normal week of campaigning. Um, but there's definitely a concern uh, in Tory high command that, you know, if we're in a week's time where there still appears to be an active service bomb unit of terrorists on the loose and they still haven't found the bomb maker or the, the place where it was built and there are perceived to be a load of people still running around out there you know we've had troops on the on the streets for a week have they contained the threat if they haven't that could start to play against the Tories if they're not careful I think what this possibly presents are arguments for use down the line for some of the people around Jeremy Corbyn who will say that had this a terrorist attack not happened this would have been a very interesting week in, in the general election indeed when you look at the chaos that was consuming the Conservative Party on Monday. Um, there was every chance that the polls would have closed up again throughout this week. Um, and I think possibly the most significant thing is not you know the arguments that Sam was outlining um, in terms of them being deployed sort of on the nose in the campaign. It's more the case of the fact that the campaign has sort of gone into stasis where it was... Um, on Monday rather than uh, playing out in the way that it might have done throughout the rest of this week. What's quite interesting is that the Conservatives have set a, 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 a sort of dilemma and it's a, a sort of dilemma where they have to make a choice. On Tuesday night, or Wednesday night, sorry, when uh, Theresa May raised the threat level to the highest possible level, suggesting an attack was imminent, she did so on the grounds that there were other people on the loose. It is unusual to have the threat level this high for a long period of time, particularly during a general election campaign, particularly when it means that there are going to be troops on the street. She is advertising the fact that people haven't been caught, that the threat is still live. She has a decision to make. Every day she must decide, well, together with the Joint Intelligence Group that advises her whether or not to lower that threat level again. And if she doesn't, could it be seen as a mark of failure of the kind of security apparatus that she oversees? I think that they're in a sort of difficult spot. There is now pressure, possibly even because it would be it's politically painful uh, if they do not uh, find people, shut this down and possibly lower the, ter the terror threat before the general election because uh, open-ended terror threats and, and, and everyone on alert possibly isn't the most advantageous situation to go into a general election with. May has two advantages, though. The first is that she is the Prime Minister, she looks like the Prime Minister, and she's acting as the Prime Minister. And what that means, secondarily, is that she has the power to change the narrative by doing things. And if you look at uh, Sam's newspaper this morning, there's a whole selection of things that they appear to be looking at um, in terms of tightening up um, uh, the prevent strategy, putting more money into that, crackdowns on internet companies. They can find a lot of villains and, and do a lot of things and make a lot of announcements. And, and as ever, when you're the government, you can be on the front foot. It's quite a dangerous game for Labour to start saying this is all the fault of the Libyan war. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Or something like that. Of course, one of the things that we've seen, and it probably you know brings out the worst uh, in the reaction to the Manchester attack, is people saying, well, this is all very convenient for the Conservative Party. There was a Labour councillor who, I think, said that it was convenient timing for Theresa May after the social care U-turn. On, on Twitter, there have been people saying that given that the attacker was known to MI5, the timing seems fortunate for May. Then an attack slips through, prompting Rufus Hound, a comedian who might be better off sticking to uh, comedy, who, who told more than is more than a million followers on Twitter. Apologies for tin-hattedness, but I've been thinking the same, especially, especially as she was Home Secretary for so long. Hashtag Reichstag fire. I'm sort of, well, I'm in two minds whether or not we should even bother talking about it because they're quite clearly mad, but there are people who seem to at least be entertaining this ridiculous idea. There are completely balmy, untrue conspiracy theories that um, shouldn't be given almost the oxygen of publicity. There is a slightly diff- different political point uh, that uh, to make, and this is just a brutal reality, which is on Monday, Theresa May had uh, the worst day of her campaign, possibly the worst day of her premiership in terms of the sort of political back and forth when she had to do a u-turn over the centerpiece of her manifesto um uh, less than a week after it was it was unveiled and on tuesday for the most tragic reasons the narrative changed very sharply because of this absolutely appalling terrorist attack that uh, uh, that will dominate for months uh, to come that is how life goes uh, there is no conspiracy there is uh, no gain for anybody to be suggesting anything else so i think that um politicians must tread extremely wary warily in uh, relation to this there have been a couple of examples of low level political figures sort of councillors and the like uh, making a little bit of capital like that on it but uh, uh, down that way i think ruin lies and almost all members of the british public uh, would reflect that in the way they choose to vote well let's move on then to the situation as we saw it on monday with the social care u-turn as Sam was saying, was particularly damaging for Theresa May. And although newspapers and the TV news have obviously been focused on uh, the events in Manchester, voters, normal people, are able to think about two things at once and whatever thoughts that they might have formed about or opinions they formed about Theresa May on Monday will still be there regardless of what uh, the the news being dominated by events in Manchester. How bad do you think it was, the social care U-turn, Tim? Well, I think it was fairly catastrophic. Um, I mean, I thought the policy was disastrous for the Conservatives to start with. Um, uh, I was It had explained to me in words of two syllables that uh, I was wrong about that and that uh, I didn't understand politics. Um, and I've been resisting the temptation to pick up uh, my phone and text them back. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I mean, Theresa May's main selling point is, you know, um, to quote herself, strong, stable, you know, a pragmatist. Um, and 
someone who knows her own mind. And, um, you know, those people in Brussels who are about to negotiate with her will be looking with great interest at someone who argues something very vociferously one day um, and then gets a bit of pushback and turns around and and does a U-turn. The interesting thing is, you know, lots of Tory MPs loathed this policy, but they didn't all think that she needed to change it. And yet she has. The other thing I thought was very revealing was that press conference on Monday. It shows how ill at ease Theresa May is with changing her mind and being seen to do so. Um, And, you know, having performed the biggest screeching U-turn that has ever happened in the middle of a general election campaign on a manifesto pledge, she then sort of glared at everybody and said, nothing has changed. Well, Either she believes that and she's completely mad or (laughs) she thinks that the media and the public um, are complete idiots. Sam? Nothing has changed reminded me of uh, Gordon Brown in 2007 saying that he didn't in any way consult the polls when uh, he decided to call off the election that never was, uh, that quite possibly would have uh, taken out the Conservative Party uh, forever. It was a moment of madness and it will have looked um, very bad in the eyes of the public. I think that uh, it is worth saying just how bad they must have thought the impact of the policy was in the first place because they did a U-turn which put on the line Theresa's reputation as being strong and stable and uh, reinforced this idea that she is for turning. And they were prepared to risk that because they clearly thought the alternative was worse, even though, as Tim rightly says, a lot of Tory MPs were saying, we think we can weather this. That means they must have picked up something very, very, very bad going on over last weekend, whether that was in their internal polling or their canvas returns. Something horrendous that we haven't quite got to the bottom of was found last weekend uh, in the three or four days since the manifesto that forced them to do a ma- to do a U-turn that made her look, and they will have known how stupid it was going to make her look, look pretty awful in the height, at the height of an election campaign. But there was a way of explaining it that didn't require you to look stupid. You could just say, I'm the strong Prime Minister who listens, and when, and if we get it wrong, then we listen and do the right thing. And that was the sensible way to handle that press conference, not to sort of stare at everybody and de- deny that white was white and claim it was black. Uh, yeah, no, it was. It, there was sort of two things. One was doing the U-turn on a badly landed policy, but then to execute it quite so badly... Uh, was particularly striking. I mean, I, I dared to write a few weeks ago in my column in the Times that um, perhaps Theresa wasn't very good. We're amazed we're still here. We've <laughs> um, not been uh, locked up in the tower. Um, and it was surprising, actually, the number of senior Tories who got in touch to say privately that they had similar suspicions. But at that point, she was riding so high in the polls that nobody wanted to say that and, you know, stick by because she was 20 points ahead in the polls. Suddenly, when it's down to single figures in the polls... And uh, U-turn is executed on a social care policy that was stuck into the manifesto at the last minute, then executed incredibly badly. And she, I thought she looked particularly uncomfortable on the Andrew Neil uh, interview programme as well. But it does raise serious doubts where her style of being Prime Minister is to stand at lecterns and read out well-crafted statements. But when she faces a follow-up question or even a difficult question, she just sort of she cut she she seems unable to deal with it well as someone who's interviewed her quite recently um her interview technique is to uh, pivot as quickly as she can to whatever Linton Crosby has told her to say. But more than that, it's to sort of seek out answers that she's given before, um, because that's where she's most comfortable. I asked her about um, the the day I interviewed her was the day of the NHS hack, and I said, 
um, you know, what do you make of that, Prime Minister? You must be angry about it. And she said, well, it's not what we want to see in the NHS. I said, yes, but I mean, you know, this is quite a big thing. It's quite, you know, well, it's not what we want to see. And I said, well, you don't sound very angry about it. <laughs> and she immediately leapt on that and said, well, I am. Ang- I, I know what makes me angry. I've answered this before and proceeded to trot out a line about injustice, which she speaks about with great passion and effectiveness and how she'd been affected by... Um, the abuse of girls in Rotherham and how that they had been sort of allowed to be abused because of their social class. And she sounded genuinely enraged. But for her, that was an answer she'd given before in every other interview. And she knows that when she's asked about what makes her angry, that that's what she then says. Um, but it was and actually... it's retreating to a comfort zone. It's not thinking about how angry she might have been on the day about that issue. It was thinking, what can I possibly say that would answer this question. I know the answer to that because I've done it before and she just retreats into a place where she's comfortable. But your question was, are you angry about the lack of uh, spamware firewalls on NHS computers? Yes, why are they still using Windows XP? Um, You know, why... um, How angry are you at the the fact that these people have, uh, you know, uh, who are doing this, you know, need dealing with? Um, And her answer was to retreat to to something she'd she'd done years before. I think think what is significant about the social care U-turn is that we saw all of Theresa May's flaws, and there's no politician without flaws, but we saw them all in one episode. (laughs) This was a policy that was drawn up with a very, very small number of people. As far as we understand, it was Nick Timothy's idea. He he rode roughshod over even Downing Street's own uh, head of policy uh, uh, when pushing this idea through. It was inserted in the manifesto at the last time with all, uh, at the last minute with almost no consultation. So that's flaw number one that people know is already there in this episode. Uh, then she came out and uh, uh, and said that uh, the fact that it was controversial was a sign of her strength uh, and uh, people worried slightly but, uh, but, but went with it because we're in an election campaign. Then she committed a U-turn that arguably... Um, involved her team misreading the views of lots and lots of Conservative candidates who didn't think that she needed to U-turn. Maybe there are factors that we don't know about, but that was certainly my perception calling around the country. So did her team, very small team, misread what was going on? And then she performed absolutely appallingly like a sort of robot, the Maybot, in front of the, in front of the, in front of the television cameras. We saw all the flaws That's in one... That's two of you on the death list. <laughs> I will drag you down, Tim, don't worry. Um but but those are her flaws, and um, she, and I think that the episode last in the last week has damaged her in the eyes of some members of the public who saw somebody who was willing to say that white is black, but but perhaps more importantly has undermined trust in the wider conservative circles, even amongst ministers and cabinet ministers, about the person who is all powerful standing behind uh, behind Theresa May, which is Nick Timothy. Uh, there was a joke going around at the weekend amongst conservative candidates uh, that if Nick Timothy is Theresa May's brain, uh, she needs a, a, a neurosurgeon. I think some conservative candidates need a new joke writer. Um, uh, <laughs> But I think that the undermining of him and his reputation has been a serious factor in the last few days, and that could have um, consequences after the election when, when, when he and his fellow chief of staff, Fiona Hill, are all-powerful. For I think they will find that he, in senior Conservative circles, they get quite short shrift if they make mistakes and few people to defend them. And I think what they've seen in sort of uh, Tory high command is that um, they don't have a lot of friends. They have a cabinet that does not really sort of support the thrust of where Theresa May is going, and I think she will try to change that when she has a reshuffle. Sam and I both know from talking to a lot of MPs who obviously won't put their heads above the parapet, but their support for her is uh, is wide but pretty shallow, um, and it's based on seeing her as a winner and seeing her as someone 
when they knocked on doors that was connecting with Labour voters who haven't voted Tory in 30 years or have never voted Tory at all, um, and thinking that here was someone who, through being a slightly dull practical character, was able to cut through to a group of people that were not giving them a second thought um, in the ballot box for a long time. But if that changes... Um, there's not a whole heck of a lot of support out there. And if you look at the sort of wider Tory world, the think tanks and the people who come up with the ideas, these are not people who are overly sympathetic with a lot of what Nick Timothy's been trying to do, bashing business as they perceive it. And I think that there is a very basic problem with Team May. And I hate to say it, but it doesn't feel like those at the top of Team May are very nice to people. One of the reasons that they have so little buy-in from Cabinet, Special Advisers ministers and, and the rest is because those around Theresa are ferociously and sometimes extremely aggressively nasty uh, to some of the people that um, uh, that work there. Some of the stories that emerge from Downing Street about what it's like to work in there are not particularly pretty. I think Theresa has to learn a slightly more human side when dealing with colleagues when the cameras are off in order to get more political friends because at the moment uh, as Tim says, it's it's wide and shallow, but at the top, at the cabinet level and around those at the top of government, she needs more allies than she have, otherwise she could suddenly find herself in quite deep waters after the election. I mean, it's an amazing feat to teach all of these new Tory MPs, even before they arrive in Westminster, that if enough of them pipe up, they can force the strong and stable Prime Minister into a U-turn. Well, there was, a, there was a thing about how the May team was sort of putting people into the safe seats and hand-picking these guys and making sure that they weren't going to be troublemakers. And the phrase that did the rounds was, no more Heidi Allens, who is an MP in South Cambridgeshire, who has got involved in nearly every rebellion that's been going on. Um, it was one of the leading lights in opposing uh, the changes to tax credits and disability benefits and all that sort of thing. Well, what this will have done is to create a whole new raft of Heidi Allens. Before they've even arrived. It's amazing. We should um, Let's talk about the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. What does he need to do over the next two weeks? I mean, it was interesting, the polls uh, before the Manchester attack had him mid-30s in the polls, higher than Ed Miliband got, close to what Tony Blair got in 2005. Head in hand's time for Labour MPs that hoped a bad result would force him to quit. What, what does he need to do, do you think, over the next two weeks, Sam? Um, I think primarily he has to not stumble, particularly in relation to the uh, terror attack. The, the story of the story of Jeremy Corbyn is that there are there are a uh, there is a core level of Labour support um, bigger than I think even people in the Westminster Village assumed and have assumed for much of the last year who are um, fans of the way that Jeremy Corbyn approaches his politics. It's quite an alien way to many people in SW1, um, but it is not unpopular. People who don't like the uh, cut and thrust and in many ways the arrogance of the way that Westminster conducts itself uh, in, in public, that is popular. But Jeremy Corbyn must avoid doing that thing that deters people, which is saying something extremely silly or allowing himself to be dragged into a row uh, about something. And there's a clear and present danger that that could happen in relation to the events of this uh, this week. So I think um, steady as she goes, and um, whilst it still feels less likely rather than more likely that uh, uh, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn will become Prime Minister, um, it feels increasingly likely that there is a chance that the Labour Party may, may end up with a pretty respectable Ed Miliband-ish share of the vote on June the 8th, even if 
uh, regional variation on swings means that the Conservatives pick up more uh, more more seats. At the moment, his shadow cabinet is clearly divided between those who are close allies of his, uh, who are dominating the airwaves, and those lesser-known names, uh, people like Nia Griffiths, the Shadow Defence Secretary, who are playing a lesser role. Uh, perhaps if he presents more of a team, more of a united team, that 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 could help. But essentially, I think um, uh, seeming controlled, seeming uh, not to be at the mercy of events is probably the best thing he can do right now. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's shtick is to tell everybody what he really believes and sort of wear his heart on his sleeve. On pain of death, he needs to not say what he really thinks about um, acts of terrorism. Um, he could start by calling it terrorism rather than violence, which is what he called it in his first public statement on the issue. Uh, we know that Jeremy Corbyn thinks that uh, Islamist uh, terrorism is the consequence of uh, Western foreign policy. Uh, if he says that out loud in the next fortnight, uh, he will do himself uh, a great deal of damage, I suspect. Um, so, so, do you think that's why? I mean, that's the sort of Westminster view of it. But there are lots of people who will, who will think that various wars that Britain's involved itself in, I mean, not least because of the Libya link, which even the British politicians involved in it acknowledge didn't end in the way it should have done. No, no, that's correct. But uh, I think people would share that view in the abstract. But when they see the broken bodies of children being taken out of an arena in central England, um, I think they think that providing excuses for the people who might have been behind that is, is not very politically astute. Um, and, you know, the the media would, I think, uh, draw their attention to that in a big way. I mean, the only thing I would say in counterpoint to the polls is that, don't forget, Ed Miliband was polling at 35% throughout a lot of that campaign. And throughout, the, if you look at the last four general elections, Labour, including under Blair, um, was, was getting polls during the campaign that were four or five, six points ahead of what they ended up with at the end of it. Um, the key number, of course, is 30.4%, which is what Ed Miliband got last time. Uh, if they get more than that, however many seats they lose, they will argue that this is an advanced for a socialist agenda and uh, they will try and stick with Corbyn or someone very like him. Well, let's just briefly uh, touch on UKIP as well because they've uh, launched their manifesto because they delayed it because of uh, events in Manchester. Or, you know, a huge part of the Tory uptick in the polls is, th is thanks to the collapse in UKIP. Sam, is there a, is there a way for UKIP to come back? Um what struck me through this campaign is just how poor a media performer Paul Nuttall is. On Sunday, he gave what I thought was possibly the worst uh, broadcast interview uh, <laughs> I can remember in living memory, uh, where he declared that it wasn't very important that the party had MPs. And the reason that they didn't do very well in the local elections, can I remind you, they got one seat, um, uh, was because the local elections were called after the general election was announced, meaning that the local election was fought on national issues. Well, I don't know what a general election is unless it's something that's fought on on national issues. He's going to try and make a play on migration. He's going to try and make a play on uh, Brexit. Um, these are issues that, uh, in general, voters seem to trust uh, Theresa May on. She has done a very good job of reuniting the right. The, um, in a sense, this is one of the problems for Jeremy Corbyn, is that the Labour vote share can go up and down, but that reuniting of the right, uh, with nine out of ten former uh, UKIP voters going to the, uh, going to the Conservative Party, uh, is and always have been, as it were, the game-changer in this election. Uh, so um, Mr Nuttall and his team will have a, an extremely hard task ahead of them in order to um, uh, change the narrative now. I mean, Paul Nuttall is presiding not over the Titanic, but over a melting iceberg that ran into it. <laughs> um, I mean, there's nothing left there, is there? I mean, you would... You, th there is a way back for UKIP, which is that when, Theresa, when and if Theresa May does not get the kind of deal that UKIP's voters... 
uh, would like on Brexit, that there would then be an opportunity for UKIP to get some of those votes back. And the way that they generally do that is in a European election where people focus on the EU issue. Sadly, by the time that comes around, we'll have left the EU and there will be no European elections in Britain. So it's very hard to see how UKIP ever revive themselves. Um, there will be something that fills that political space, uh, which Aaron Banks, um, the, the former donor, and Nigel Farage will front. Um, we don't yet quite know what that will be called or when it will unfold, but uh, in the autumn something will appear but it sure as heck isn't going to be UKIP. Well, it's fascinating times, and we'll come back to all these issues in the in the next couple of weeks as the campaign unfolds. That's all we've got time for this week. Make sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast. Join the campaign by subscribing on iTunes or on your Android device and sign up to the Redbox morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. My thanks to Deborah Haynes in Brussels and Tim Shipman and Sam Coates here in the studio. For now, from me, Matt Chorley. It- this episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. It's goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>